Today, I'm talking to Daniel Vassalo about his book, The Good Parts of AWS. Daniel, thank you for joining me on Software Sessions. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. You wrote a book called The Good Parts of AWS, which suggests there are bad parts or parts most developers shouldn't look at. How did we get to this point? How did we end up with so many services that developers don't even know where to start? I think what happened is AWS grew so much in popularity, uh, especially in the enterprise world, that it doesn't speak to the developers anymore. Like I remember I used to use AWS at the very beginning in 2010 date, more than 10 years ago, where the website was super simple. There were like three or four services. They, if I remember correctly, code examples, if not on the front page, like a click away where you can sort of uh, as a developer, understand uh, what um, what you could use and what value you could get. But as I think nowadays, uh, even me, like I go to the AWS website and I barely understand <laughs> uh, what, uh, the language, right? Because it's speaking to CTOs of big Fortune 500 companies, like lots of buzzwords and jargon and blockchain and machine learning and and lots of other things. And it's daunting, I think, right? Uh, sort of, it's, it's, it's very hard for somebody that hasn't really seen it evolve, right? To sort of go to the product pages and understand, uh, you know, what options are available. Not to mention that there are many, many ways of doing the same thing. Like if you want to have a database running on AWS, there's, you know, probably five different options. And uh, I think AWS also doesn't do a great job then explaining the difference. It's like, you know, there's this good for this and this and this and this, but um, it's sort of there's still a gap in terms of how to think about things clearly. Uh, so in this book, basically, I try to pick on the things that are definitely worth looking at, right? That's nearly every, uh, every non-trivial application would likely benefit to, ha- to at least consider these things. And uh, they were only things that I had first-hand experience with, so I tried to stay away with things that I didn't know much about, right? And I just wrote about uh, how I think about uh, the most important parts, right? And when you went into selecting the parts that you felt were um, the most important parts, where where is your your background coming from? Like, what kinds of applications were you building? So I joined Amazon in 2010, uh, so over nine years ago. Before Amazon, I was a full-stack developer. I was working in a couple of small startups where I was building and helping build applications end-to-end, some front-end, back-end databases, the usual thing. Uh, at Amazon, I was mostly worked. I was part of the CloudWatch team, which is the monitoring product in AWS. And uh, sort of the main focus was on back-end web services. Right, so basically, our interface tended to stop mostly with the with the API, and uh, we're just building uh, these web services that stored metric data, log data about how applications are are working on. Um, I think I tried to sort of even in the book, right, I tried to um, focus on things that are more broader than just specific backends or database focus or frontend focus. Right, I think. Like not every application will need to use everything, obviously, right? But it, this is just uh, the, the the presentation that I'd say to give is um, I, I like this concept of a default choice, which is a bit of a subjective perspective, I admit, right? But um, for example, 
uh, if I needed to store files somewhere in the cloud, you know, my default choice would be to to use S3, right? It's just super hard to beat in terms of price per storage or availability or durability, right? So I like to think about to do this heuristic where I have like default choices where I would just default to some things unless I really believed that this default choice wasn't good enough for me. And um, uh, I try to present ideas like that. Like if you want to have a server in the cloud, right? Uh, uh, you know, EC2 is a perfect case, right? Much more than Lambda and other things that which, is, which are much more limited than a full server. Same with DynamoDB, right? Where DynamoDB, I think actually Amazon does it a disservice by describing it as a database. I like to think of it more like a data structure, right? It's significantly simpler than what we tend to expect from a traditional DBMS, right? Where you have, um, you know, lots of features uh, that you would be disappointed <laughs> if you expected them from DynamoDB. Um, I think DynamoDB is much closer to something like Redis than it is to MySQL. Right. And I think if you think about it that way, that makes it much easier to, to, to see whether it fits your needs or not. Right. Can I fit all my data inside a very primitive B3 data structure that's highly durable and highly available? If yes, great. It's a great default choice. Um, but if not, right, if you need stored procedures and triggers and joins and sub-queries that run you know, on, on, close to the data, then you're going to have a hard time. You can probably find a way to work around these limitations, but it's probably going to be uh, very hard right, to use. So yeah, that's sort of, it, it was my main take, right? So I go to, I don't remember exactly how many services I covered, like, but about, uh, I think a dozen, right? With um, sort of this high level perspective on how you think about things, uh, which uh, I think is a simpler way to reason about them. Uh, than just reading the Amazon product pages. <laughs> right, which is, uh, uh, you know, when you go to the Amazon homepage and you you click that button that shows you all the services, it's kind of like, it's kind of insane, right? <laughs> yeah, it's daunting, it's yeah, just... <laughs> it's daunting. And, and, and that's the problem, right? You see databases, a category, and then you see six things under it, and you click on all of them in a new tab, and it's still hard to understand what's the difference, yeah. right? Or which which one you should choose and things like that. Mm -hmm. I, I want to go a little bit into your choice to, you had mentioned DynamoDB and how you felt like it's more of a, a data structure than a database. And I'm kind of curious, you know, why you decided to choose that to be your default data store rather than something like uh, RDS, like some kind of relational database store. Yeah, I think actually uh, I'd say to have a, mo a slightly more nuanced take, I I, I would say DynamoDB is a good thing to consider as a default. Right? Basically ask yourself, can my data fit uh, in uh, this very primitive data structure? Because I think if it fits, uh, DynamoDB spares you from a lot of burden and operational sort of worries and things that you would have to deal with. Even if you were to go with RDS, right? uh, things like setting up uh, backups and making sure that you're not running out of memory and the primary keys and, you know, that the indices are you know, fitting in memory uh, and IOPS and things like that. So you literally, DynamoDB abstracts everything away 
that I filmed you. For many web applications and web services, the database tends to be one of the most challenging things to keep running, right? So, so then we yeah, can be very helpful. But there are probably two things to think about. Uh, again, like you can live with this access pattern where it's literally just leading off uh, B3 and the pricing as well, which I touch on in the book, right? Sometimes the pricing uh, can be uh, significantly more expensive. That can be cost prohibitive depending on how, you, how you're using it. Then I think if you realize that then it doesn't make sense for your case, then I think, yeah, RDS is a perfect example. I didn't write much about RDS in the book because... I don't have recent experience, so I used RDS at Amazon in 2011, so a very long time ago. And uh, to be honest, this was quite a terrible experience. We, uh, you know, we had all sorts of problems from sort of databases getting stuck for several, you know, like for 45 minutes, and not being able to do anything about them, failovers happening randomly and not failing over, like all these kinds of things that you don't want to happen with the databases. But to be fair, I believe many of these things have improved significantly. That I would feel comfortable using RDS uh, if I needed it, but I didn't really have the first-hand experience to be able to sort of highlight any quirks or any other things that I am missing. Right? So it's uh, it's the only reason why it doesn't appear in the book. That right? is just because I didn't feel uh, sort of I had the the right to write about it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And this is, in fact, I think something similar. Um, that uh, I think is a bit risky in, our, in the RDS world is Aurora, right? Aurora is fascinating technology. Like I really like this idea where um, the data and the compute are separated, that which is sort of one of the fundamental unique differences where typically when you had a typical database, you know, you scaled everything together. If you wanted more space or more memory or more CPU, everything glued together. And sort of one of the problems uh, ends up being like, if you have a database that's lots, that, that has lots of data, but it's not running, you have sort of these disproportionate um, uh, sort of resources that are underutilized or they're a bottleneck and things like that. As Aurora da manages to sort of keep the data separate from the compute and if you're running a query, it can sort of spin up more compute on demand and things like that. But I think from what I heard, again, like this is mostly second-hand sort of information, is that there are, I mean, one of the things that I would all try to do was to be compatible with MySQL, I don't know, with other databases as well. The problem that happened is that the behavior is not really that compatible. The interface is, like the, the queries are the same. But for example, you might expect that adding a column to a table in MySQL would be, you know, harmless, whereas in our law that might lock up. Uh, this is just a, not a real example, but things like these, right? Where in our law that might lock your whole table. Um, and in fact, I think there was a Reddit post a couple of, a few months ago. Um, where someone highlighted lots of things like this, which are quite scary. There are things that in a typical, in, in, when you're using MySQL, they're just non-disruptive. But when you do, when you use Aurora, you know, they ended up being very catastrophic or very problematic things. And I think this is a problem with, um, uh, with just, you know, still immature technology, right? I mean, MySQL has been around for, I don't know, like since the 90s, I think, like for 20 or more years. 
millions of users and get every day like millions of hours of 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 usage right whereas our oil is just a couple of years old it's nice to sort of be at the open replacement for a database that had been around for like two decades at least and uh, it's just a very hard thing to do right so in general right i'm not very tempted to just jump into the latest and greatest by default <laughs> yeah right yeah. so uh, <laughs> i like the the devil that I know, even if there are problems that I like, sort of, I think there's a lot of value that many people underappreciate and many mm-hmm. people in tech tend to underappreciate out right, of the, the test of time, right? Things that sort of, the more software gets used, the better it gets typically, right? right? Because the more issues get revealed, right? The more sort of uh, bugs gets fixed and things like that. So, yeah. When I think of the tried and true, I think of things like MySQL or Postgres. So it's interesting that AWS has been around so long that cloud-only services like DynamoDB and S3 are now in that category. I think I think that's true for part of them, right? And I think that's a little bit the the, the trap sometimes because I I completely agree DynamoDB and S3. I would I would put them in the category of the tried and true. S3 mostly, right? Because it's used by you know nearly everyone. DynamoDB is used extensively within Amazon, and I think even outside it's decently popular. But um, there are probably another hundred or so of services that would definitely not fit in that category, right? Mm-hmm. These are mostly, you know, Amazon launches, I don't know now, like dozens of new services every year, right? And many of these, <laughs> I've seen it myself, I right, just get launched with very limited usage, right? The first users are um, almost literally the first users. So again, like I wouldn't necessarily avoid them at all costs. I, I think it's just, um, it would be very prudent to treat them, uh, you know, differently than, than other things, right? Because if they're offering something particularly valuable for what you're trying to do, I think they're still worth considering. Um, what I think is potentially harmful is the idea that, uh, newer is better, right? Just uh, automatically, which I, I see sometimes happening in like in the databases, in, in compute as well. I think there's a bit of this problem, even in the Lambda API gateway and that kind of thing, right? Where as soon as sort of, um, there seems to be this impression that the, the default should be that if I'm hosting a web application, it should be on Lambda, right? Which I think is is an ins- insane default. <laughs> no, and again, not saying I, I actually like Lambda a lot, but I think mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, overutilized for what it is intended to do. And actually, I'm very optimistic about the serverless future where we're building web applications where you don't have to think about the operating system and the and the, the hardware underneath it. See lots of potential. Um, but you know, if you're building something for if you're building something today, you have to look at the options that exist today, right? And there's lo- still lots of issues with running a web application, a, a sophisticated web application, not some trivial, you know, hackathon project, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, completely on, on, on Lambda and API Gateway, right? Um, yeah, you were talking earlier about uh, Aurora and, you know, I wasn't even aware of, well, I was aware of the fact that they offer like MySQL and Postgres compatible offerings, mm-hmm. but I wasn't even aware that the internals, you know, like you were saying, you're giving an example where, um, you know, you add columns or you make some kind of change and the behavior of Aurora may not yeah. be the same as yeah. the, you know, the actual open source project. And so I wonder like, 
when people are are choosing services from AWS, you know, for example, whether it's RDS or it's Elasticash or you know these managed services that AWS offers, how can people find out or determine if it really behaves the way they're going to expect in terms of the the open source product? I think you can read between the lines a little bit, and I think it actually AWS makes it. Not super clear, but it's not completely uh, obscure. And there are two types of managed services. Right? The ones that AWS literally takes the open source project and, and hosts it as is. And this is the typical MySQL running on RDS. To be honest, I don't know if there are some minor changes to it. There might be, but if there are, I wouldn't expect them to be. Uh, significant. Sometimes there are limitations, right? And these kinds of things. Sometimes you might not be able to change some settings. And um, uh, this is coming, for example, in the Elasticsearch hosted service, right? There's lots of things that you can't uh, modify if you if you choose them. But these are easier to reason about because you can just there's typically a limitations page in the documentation, right? Or what you know, it's typically documented somewhere. But then I think there's another category of services. Like Aurora, and there's like I think Document DB that implements the MongoDB interface. These um, uh, these are not the real thing. That is AWS, Amazon built uh, a brand new piece of technology and just made the API compatible with it. And so I don't think you can in the in the latter category you can't expect the test of time that would have exercised the open source technology to apply to these things. Right, because it's literally just a different black box uh, behind it, um, and um, so yeah, I think you you can you can tell. I don't think uh, so again, like it's not immediately clear just from reading the the, the names like uh, of the products, but I think if you dig a little deeper, you can tell <clears throat> whether this is actually the real thing or it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, again, like I, I I'm not saying that. For example, doc, document the B or anything are necessarily bad, right? but uh, they're new tech, right? This is tech that I think it's safe to assume that when they were launched, almost nobody used them. I'm sure there were, there would have been a few beta testers and whatever, but this is the level right, of mm-hmm. far from, you know, MongoDB again, like which has been around. I'm sure it has problems as well, right? But it's different, right? It's um, first of all. Many of its problems are well known, and if you are to Google on about them, you probably find uh, behaviors and workarounds and things like that. Um, or many have been fixed, right? So, in, in terms of the, you were talking about how you have this heuristic for deciding your default choices, deciding which technologies are stable and which are not. How do you go through that process of deciding what technology you should choose? Like to give you an example. You were mentioning how S3 has been around a long time. Mm -hmm. Amazon builds a lot of their products based on top of it, as do many other people. So that kind of makes sense. But with something like, say, Lambda, which is much more recent, Mm -hmm. you know, what do you evaluate and what gives you the confidence to decide that, like, this should become a part of my default stack? Yeah, I think, and this is the reason why this is subjective and different to others. One One of the main things for me is my own familiarity. Right. I give lots of weight. If I've if something that I've used before, I know how it works, I know its problems, I know where to look. If I need help, right, uh, I give that lots of weight. Basically, my ultimate test is I try to optimize for choices that are very unlikely to fail me. Right. 
if again, like t- taking S3 as an example, if I wanted to store something safe, S3 is just perfect for me. I understand it. I understand its performance. I sort of um, know how it behaves. And it's super unlikely that I'm going to find something surprising that, you know, that that it turns out that actually I thought I was saving everything, but nothing got saved. Or I, I thought I might be able to download things at 100 megabytes a second, but it turns out to be at one megabyte, right? It's unlikely that I'm going to find weird things. So, and uh, I think that's important, right? So uh, in addition to that, I think when it's lack of my own familiarity, I try to... Uh, uh, give weight to uh, again, like as we said before, just uh, test test of time, right? It's whether something has been used for a long time. That right? I get lots more confidence if something has been around, especially for something uh, important like uh, hosting the application or databases or storage. Still, this, these are not hard rules because if they were, like no, nothing new would would um, <laughs> would ever be used, right? So. Uh, I think this is just just a way of thinking, right, and giving weight to things. And I think it's still worth looking at at new things as they come out and sort of keeping an eye and trying things out. But I think this this sort of this approach helps you make helps you be more confident when you're making choices, right, and not get um, sort of not get sort of uh, you know the, the 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 situation where like there's infinite number of choices sort of make it very daunting that which is that's that's another problem that tends to happen right should i you know <laughs> how, how i'm going to pick right so this is sort of one way of <laughs> helping you make that choice mm-hmm. yeah and so like one thing i'd like to kind of go back to is you know we were talking about uh dynamo db and s3 what are some examples of the kinds of things that somebody would choose to store in S3 versus in DynamoDB or in RDS? It's it's funny because DynamoDB and S3 are actually very similar in terms of the interfaces. They both have sort of a put and get by a key key value sort of uh, API, and they both allow you to sort of list things in, in order, you know, in S3 by key that you get them in order and DynamoDB by the range key. And I think you nearly can use them interchangeably. That's, I mean, it's probably not exactly true, but for many cases. Um, I think the main difference between the two, like from a very sort of technical point of view, is a matter of performance and price. Like you're looking at a situation where, you know, the storage cost for S3 is significantly cheaper. I think it's like a tenth of DynamoDB, not to mention that sometimes you can compress even better in, in S3. Um, but the cost of writing something, the, the operation cost is significantly higher in, in S3, right? It's, um, it's, I think it's a cent per thousand writes or something like that, right? Where in Dino is significantly uh, less expensive. Um, and then there's the performance aspect, right? Which S3 has a higher time to first byte. Uh, of you know twenty to fifty milliseconds, whereas in Dynamo it can be you know sub ten milliseconds, and um, then the other thing again, like is when you're reading something in bulk out of S3, it's significantly faster. You can get 
download speeds of close to 100 megabytes a second from a single thread, and you can use as many threads as you want. Right? Whereas in Dynamo, you have to scan over things and paginate and just even the round trips. Um, I never really measured the maximum throughput you can get out of Dynamo, but it's significantly shorter, um, smaller than Dynamo. So I think between those two, it's literally a matter of which one makes most sense. Right? Am I storing lots of small, tiny things that I need to read uh, out only in small segments, or am I storing bulky, uh, but or fewer things right, that I need to read out like in in bulk as fast as possible? Right, so sort of helps you make the decisions. I think in terms of availability and durability, they're pretty much equivalent. They're both the kinds of services where if you write something, you, you can, for all practical purposes, expect to never lose it. They're both highly available, you know, like any service. They occasionally experience a blip of issues, but, you know, they're probably one of the most uh, reliable services that AWS has, right? Um, RDS is a bit different. I consider RDS uh, in a different category than those two, because again, like ST and Dynamo are still just data structures in the cloud, right? They're just this very primitive thing, just two ways of reading and writing data. Um, I think that uh, databases like RDS, they're just a different machine, right? Where um, I think they make sense where you just, where you, you need their sophistication, right? Where you mm-hmm. need sort of the ability to write sophisticated SQL queries and do joins and do aggregations and, you know, not have to... And that's the nice thing about them, right? Is that <clears throat> any SQL expression, they, they can run it, right? Whereas in, in, when you're using something primitive uh, like S3 and Dynamo, you have to build those querying capabilities yourself in your application if you want to offer them, right? So you're getting a lot more from using RDS, right? But you're getting a lot more to manage as well, right? Again, like Dynamo and S3 are the two types of services where they're close to zero uh, maintenance, right? Uh, As much as possible, S3 in particular, even more, although even Dynamo is almost there. Um, I think RDS is uh, far from that, right? It's still something that you would have to monitor, have alarms on, make sure that it hasn't gone down. Because if it goes, you know, if it runs out of memory, it's it's your problem. It's not Amazon that's going, not somebody from Amazon that's going to wake up and fix it for you, right? Whereas if S3 has an issue, which happens very rarely, but if it were to happen, someone from Amazon will wake up <laughs> and fix it, right? So that's <laughs> yeah. the main difference, right? Um, yeah. yeah, so so basically using a relational database, you know, can be a lot more powerful in terms of the querying capabilities and the things that you can push off to the database rather than your own application. But the trade-off you're making is that um, you have to come up with your own backup solution. You have to come up with um, how you're going to scale up the database in terms of telling Amazon, hey, I need more memory or I need more compute, that kind of thing. Yeah, and not, so, only, not, not only that, even knowing whether you need more memory, right? So mm-hmm. not only the fact that, you know, because actually it's not that hard to scale, but knowing when you need to scale, you need to keep mm-hmm. an eye. Like you, uh, mm-hmm. How do you know how much memory you need? It's already, a, you know, it's already a big, big, big problem. You know, yeah. a complicated question to answer, mm-hmm. right? How much CPU do you need, right? Um, and 
even once you make the, the choice, like uh, at what point will you want more, right? Um, and things like that. It all adds to the sort of things that you have on your plate, right? Which uh, the other services basically eliminate. I guess the Aurora implementation of RDS, the, the hope is that you would move in the direction of not needing to manage the, you know, the scaling, but yeah. it sounds like it's maybe a little too, too early for yeah, people to just jump in. I think it's very promising, right? I'm, mm-hmm. uh, I'm very optimistic about that approach in general. I think it's a very mm-hmm. you know, smart sort of way of doing databases. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, yeah, I think it just needs to be treated as, as something brand new. I think that's the only precaution that I would advise, right? It's just, um, you know, if you have some mission critical, you know, database that uh, you would absolutely never want to experience any problems, right? I would mm-hmm. uh, be very cautious before I just change from Postgres to Aurora, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think, I think. Both the both the customers of Aurora as well as Amazon itself is still yet to learn about its behavior because this is just and again like piece a complex piece of technology that mm-hmm. I don't think Amazon intentionally made anything incompatible in terms of behavior. That is just m- things that get missed out and things that uh, nobody expected, right? Because some of these things might not even be documented by the open source solutions. Like uh, they're just behaviors that people ten- ended up expecting from their own experience, right? And then when they end up using something different, they get surprised, right? So uh, these are the, these are the issues. And in addition to that, again, one of the problems of something being new is that you tend to find less support online, less books, less community, right? So there's it compounds, right? So it's another drawback, basically, right, of jumping into the latest and greatest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I talked to a, a guest previously where they were talking about their experience with Aurora a little bit, and they were saying they found it hard to predict how much things were going to cost, mm-hmm. and the the latency um, of their queries was kind of a little inconsistent compared to their experience with RDS. So it sounds like there's... Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there are definitely whenever you're going to jump to something new, you want to make sure that you you fully understand how it behaves. If it's important, right? Because again, like if this was a proof of concept or anything like that, maybe the, maybe the latency is not that important for you, right? Or maybe some mm-hmm. of these things are not. Um, and same same thing with Lambda, right? We touched on it bef- beforehand. I, there's lots of unpredictable things in Lambda, like in terms of network performance, something that I've experienced myself. It's, it's some completely undocumented. And it varies a lot, right? Depending on your memory, and even if with your memory is fixed, sometimes downloading from S3, you get uh, sometimes you get fifty megabytes a second, sometimes you get one megabyte a second, right? And you can't really tell. But mm-hmm. look, is it important for me? Maybe I'm not using S3, right? Or maybe my objects are so small that it doesn't really matter. So uh, I think uh, it's it's good to sort of know what what are the critical important things like maybe consistency, performance, and what are the thresholds. And then if you're, if you're considering jumping into something new, like li- really understand it well, right? If, to make sure that you're not going to be surprised um, by what you find. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I want to go a little bit more into Lambda. Earlier you were talking about how, you know, there's a lot of people who are trying to use 
the API gateway in combination with Lambda as sort of a replacement for um, a web server for their application. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that is not a good choice at this point? <laughs> so one of the nice things you have when you don't use Lambda, right, and you just go into additional, you know, you're having an application running on uh, on EC2 or maybe on the container service or something a bit more uh, less less serverless than Lambda is that you can expect that you know if, if your application if you have a Ruby on Rails application running on your laptop you can literally just deploy it there and it will run you know almost without modification right Lambda comes with Lambda and even API Gateway they come with so much rules and restrictions from the platform itself that it's nearly impossible to have you basically have to write your application to the uh, to the abstraction that they provide right and um, um, uh, you know again like for for sophisticated things and the, actually I think the problem again like is that some of these things you end up f- discovering them later. Right, you might end up. For example, one of the things that um, surprised me, which uh, is not that surprising when you think about it, is that <coughs> so, uh, both API Gateway and Lambda claim that they support WebSockets, um, which is true. Right, you could build a WebSocket application on it. But the surprising thing is that uh, every WebSocket message that you receive ends up going to a lam- random Lambda sort of uh, function. Right, it's completely non-stateless. And this is very different from when you implement WebSockets on a traditional um, uh, host uh, where you have a connection that's persistent and stateful and you can keep state in the connection and you can sort of, for example, if you authenticate a user, you authenticate once and then you're just exchanging packets over that connection. Whereas with Lambda, you basically have no state. Right? Every packet gets sent to a stateless invocation. Um, and this ends up being, first of all, uh, quite challenging because you have to keep state somewhere, maybe in DynamoDB, you have to read and write. It adds latency, right? Even though Dynamo is fast, you're still making a read and a write, maybe an extra 20 milliseconds. But sometimes the cost ends up becoming prohibitive, right? Because you end up touching DynamoDB twice per message, whereas in a traditional application, you're just exchanging packets without, um, without touching the database. Um, and um, these are the types of traps that you might end up discovering later, right? The, the, that uh, uh, you'd think, oh, uh, you know, I can I can use this, but but then you realize that you can't. Again, lots of things related to the to the statelessness, but also to the size limit of the of the binary you can deploy. Things that uh, many of these things you can work around them, right? But they just end up being uh, a, a distraction. I think Lambda is great if you think of it just as a code runner in the cloud. I have a piece of code and I want to run it most based on some activity. And I believe this was the main, the initial vision of Lambda when AWS launched it. This was the service like if you want to resize an image as soon as it uh, gets uploaded to S3, this is a perfect use case. Right? You don't have to spin up a server and monitor it. Like It's the same advantages we were talking about down to be versus RDS. Like it's just um, less, 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 less uh, maintenance for you. Um, but I think then sort of the, the you know, customers that ended up sort of use, when, when they saw it, they ended up sort of thinking, oh, I can actually just get rid of my servers and run everything on it, which 
again, like for a toy project and the demo, you can do it. But then once you start adding sophistication, you start running into into lots of limits and uh, other things. Like I was just looking at the Reddit slash AWS uh, subreddit site. It's like uh, nearly half of the topics are, how can I do this in Lambda? Right? How can I install uh, an agent? Or how can I do a clone? How can I do basic things that would be... Uh, very straightforward to do if you had um, a regular applic- web application, you know, running on a mature framework like Rails, for example, right? But they become uh, complicated things if you're running on Lambda. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and you know, this is very, I think one of probably my co- most controversial positions. Right? There's lots of people that disagree with this. <laughs> uh, that um, sort of that I might be sort of exaggerating the problems. And again, like, I don't think it's a hard rule. I think it would be foolish, nevertheless, right, to just expect uh, Lambda and API Gateway to just be uh, equivalent, right, or a substitute of a more traditional host where you actually are renting a real computer. You're not really getting a computer in the cloud with Lambda, right? You're just Mm -hmm. getting... Uh, something like JS Fiddle, <laughs> right? <laughs> something that just runs a piece of code for you. Yeah. Very different, right? So, my my advice is just caution, right? If you're if you're really mm-hmm. thinking of building a web app completely on Lambda, is just beware, right? Make sure you know what you're getting into. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just be be aware of the, I guess, the limitations, and and be aware of the things that may be very easy. Um, with an EC2 instance, but become very complicated um, when you're using Lambda. Exactly. And st- actually, and things that look easy for a demo, because Lambda makes it very easy to spin up. Lambda API Gateway is very easy to get something working very well. But then once you start adding users or adding other things that maybe you need to, you know, just even, for example, sending telemetry right out of your Lambda function, right, is just not straightforward, something that nearly every production application tends to do. Sure, there's integration yeah. with CloudWatch logs, which is something I worked with when I was at Amazon. But if you want to do more sophisticated things, like, you know, install an agent for something uh, different right, that lets you understand what's happening in your application, Things yeah. start to become very, very difficult, right? Or you end up having to create very convoluted pipelines of data going to CloudWatch logs, getting sent to a Kinesis stream, getting read out of some other thing to be sent somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're running on EC2, you install a small program that's just watching some log file and that's it, right? <laughs> you sort yeah. of forget about it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your decision to choose EC2 as kind of the default choice for compute. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are many services within AWS that kind of take the responsibility of managing the operating system away from the developer, like, for example, with um, the Elastic Container Service or mm-hmm. um, I believe it's called Elastic Beanstalk, right, is another yeah. one. Um why did you decide to choose EC2 as your default? I don't believe that neither Elastic Beanstalk nor the container service abstract that much away from you in reality, right? I think you're still responsible to operate for operating system level settings anyway, file descriptor sizes and limits on the OS, whether it's in the guest uh, container or whether it's sort of in the, especially Beanstalk, right? Actually, Beanstalk, it just bootstraps your AWS account 
for you. It sets up your VPCs and your network settings for like if you have a Rails application or, um, or uh, you know, it's additional using one of the common frameworks. It just does it with sort of good settings. And actually from Beanstalk, you can mostly, as far as I know, modify anything you want and get out of it and migrate out of it completely if you sort of outgrow it. Right? So if you see that you wanted to customize more than it allows you to. Um, I, I have I have no strong objections about either of those two things. Right? I think EC2 is just the more slightly lower level, but not that much lower level that it's significantly harder. Right? I think your responsibilities are still in the same ballpark generally right mm-hmm. um on the other hand it's lambda right that really abstracts the operating system for you and that's its big value right and that's really really valuable i don't diminish that right um you just don't care about whether it's running ubuntu or centos or whatever right and settings and things like that um, but yeah as we talked before right there's trade-offs of the platform right when 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 you're doing that when you're working directly with EC2, how do you keep your instances patched and how do you handle backups for them? Um, for, so for backups, uh, most of my experience and even work I'm doing right now is that I never have any states that would be bad if I lose it on the EC2 instances. Right? So I have no experience with stateful um, um uh, stores and and in fact I think that's one of it's, it's a very hard problem right and I would try to delegate as much as possible to any state to S3 or DynamoDB or SQS or Kinesis or things that <coughs> sort of or other things not necessarily AWS services right but uh, um, uh, other technologies that are have are built to maintain state properly so that's not a, it hasn't been a problem for me. For patching, again, I think it's something that people tend to overthink the complexities, right? I think there are, I think people would be very surprised if they knew how Amazon itself <laughs> patches it, <laughs> so, uh, the, the, the host. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's literally just running. Uh, you could run a cron job that just does, uh, you know, depending on your operating system, you know, yum, install security updates or whatever is the command and mm-hmm. the boot every week, right? And you could set it to, uh, you know, run at a random time and uh, and definitely sort of, uh, you, you know, that you're always sort of running the latest and greatest security patches or things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not very different from what happens behind the scenes, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, inside, <laughs> inside mm-hmm. the system. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, that's for operating system level security. And by the way, you could do more sophisticated things than that, obviously, right? but that's, that's something that you get to you pretty much, uh, solves, that pretty much solves the problem for application level, uh, securities, which I think are more, more important, right? Your software dependencies, your libraries, right? I think most of the issues tend to be there, right? Uh, most of the time, I think the solution there. It's not different between EC2 or Lambda or whatever, right? I think there, there the, the only solution is that you have a mechanism to deploy frequently and you're just taking, uh, updating your dependencies uh, often and you're just rolling out changes, right? So it doesn't really matter on what host you're using. Mm-hmm. 
Um, um, so another thing I'd like to ask about is one of the features you chose to include is the simple queuing service. And one of the things that you mentioned is that there is no strict ordering. So the messages could show up out of order and you could also get duplicate messages. If you're an application where the ordering matters or you don't want to process the same message more than once, how would you handle that either in message design or in your application design? Yeah, so so first of all, SQS has a feature uh, to enable strict ordering and no duplicates. It's uh, You basically set a, set a setting on the queue for FIFO, I think, FIFO. Um, but it comes with a limitation of throughput. If I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I think it's something around 300 messages per second or something like that, which I believe can be, you can request to increase it, but I'm almost certain that there's a limit on how much you can increase it because presumably, I don't really know how it works, the, 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 the strict ordering solution works, but presumably the message just need to meet in a single place somewhere right, so that they get sort of inserted. So this is very likely where the limitation comes from. So I think if you have something that you believe will be abundantly clear of that limit, I think this is probably the easiest thing to do, right? Um, if you're not expecting hundreds of messages per second, right? Otherwise, you'd have to probably handle it in your application, right, where you have to uh, remember what you're processing and you probably use some other external store, maybe DynamoDB and things like that. How you end up, what you end up choosing, I think, depends a lot on the on the scale, on the throughput. Right? Can you afford to insert something in DynamoDB, everything in DynamoDB, for example, right, so that you do the duping there? If not, can you afford to just have a short time window for the dupes? Do you really want to do to guarantee absolutely no did you, no duplicates uh, completely, or are you okay if you just look at the time window for maybe just a few minutes and then you maybe can keep some state in memory, right? Of like message uh, message IDs that you've seen, right, and things like that. So uh, it's a it's a hard problem, right? So I think it's nice that <clears throat> that SQS has this feature. Um, and I would default to it, right? Uh, definitely, if I needed strict ordering. Uh, but yeah, it's very important that you believe that you're not going to run into the limits, right? Because it's very likely, um, I'm almost certain that there's a hard limit somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. uh, another service that you include is you include Kinesis. Um, can you explain a little bit about how that differs from SQS and the types of problems it solves? Yeah, so one of the main properties that's different between the two is that Kinesis allows multiple consumers. So in terms, so I think again, like to describe it as data structures, I think Kinesis is a typical is a queue where you can only have one consumer, and the consumer basically removes, pops out the message to consume it. Whereas Kinesis is more like a linked list where the consumers can literally just keep a pointer over where, where they've led. And you can have as many consumers as you want. They all read the same data and exactly in the same order that they've that the other consumers have read it. Um, and Kinesis basically is an interesting technology for when you want to enqueue things to be processed asynchronously, and then you have multiple independent things that even if one of them were to slow down or have a problem, they wouldn't affect each other. Nevertheless, the problem with Kinesis as it exists today, and I think this will improve eventually, 
is that it's still a bit um it's a bit hard to manage that you basically manage capacities with a concept called shards that they each shard has a limit that is quite small i think it's one megabyte a second unless it increased recently so and then to ha- add more shards you have to split them so you always have to double double the size which is a bit of a of a nuisance um and um uh and you get sort of you get lots of control but also lots of responsibility of how you route your messages across the shards you need to make sure that they're evenly distributed because then you might even if you have 10 shards you might end up using one completely and the other so there's lots of these uh sort of it's, it's definitely a more complicated product than sqs where sqs is super simple you literally just enqueue and you dequeue from another side that it's, it's as simple as it gets um i, I think kinesis I included it there mostly because the alternatives to Kinesis, like for example, Kafka is typically the, the one of the technologies that is considered an alternative. I think Kinesis, is, d- despite all the challenges in, in managing it, I think it's still simpler than running Kafka. Right? Less moving parts, it's still sort of p- uh, pretty much fully managed in terms of availability and durability by AWS. Again, like if you write something to Kinesis and you get a 200 OK, you can pretty much rest assured it's safe and guaranteed, and then data expires automatically after the retention period that you can choose. So that's all managed for you. It's all nice. Whereas if you're running Kafka yourself, right, you need to spin up, set up a zookeeper in the database and to hosts and monitor them. Like, you know, in my in my head, like it's an order of magnitude more compl- complexity um, than than that. Right. So I think it's a niche use case right for kinesis i wouldn't expect any everyone to need it actually i would pretty much the opposite right very few cases would need it i think for some uh backend work that right, where we need to dispatch asynchronous work depending on what you need to do right it's a good thing to look at um when you're considering options mm-hmm. one of the things that's not discussed in the book is solutions for a content delivery network or for caching. Yeah. When you're building applications yourself, would you use the services provided by AWS or are there or are those things that you would look outside of AWS for? Yeah. I, yeah, I didn't include them again mostly because I I didn't have first-hand experience. Mm. I think CloudFront is something that again I I would rely on it. Amazon itself relies on it right, for pretty much all its you know, the amazon.com website things like that. I, I would definitely say in terms of dependence it passes the test um i think for example for st- for example even myself for user base i'm pretty much using aws for everything but for my marketing homepage, uh it's a static website right i've i've chosen to deploy it on netlify right it's just mm-hmm. a significantly simpler and better user experience uh, checking something in github 15 seconds later, it's deployed on all the CDNs, all the caches and validated. You get some analytics. It's like if you were to set up CloudFront, uh, you know, if you go to the console, you get two pages of options that you need to set and understand that. And you have to sort of uh, deployments take a long time. Sometimes they take minutes to go to all the CDNs and it's sort of, um, again, like I'm not saying like I would avoid CloudFund by all means, but I think for some use cases, especially for just simple sites, I think CloudFront might be an overkill in, in, in sophistication. 
caches like Elasticache and things like that. I've never really used any of them. Uh, so I basically don't really have an opinion on them. But I would probably still be a bit cautious again, like in terms of basically if I were to study whether I should use them, I would look for again, like for limitations, right? And things like that. Like, why would I, <clears throat> why would I use this rather than just run Redis myself, right? Uh, what I'm, what am I really getting? I would basically, I wouldn't automatically default to just using them, right? I would really would want to be convinced that the little bit of management that AWS is providing is really worth, worth it. Um, mm-hmm. Because unlike RD, like my, my gut feel is that unlike RDS, like which, which, Provided, I mean, Amazon RDS is still just the open source database and most of the management is still for you, but it is providing some good, valuable management, like, for example, managing failovers and the backups. It's just a click of a button and things like that. They're very valuable if you had to do them yourself. Uh, it's quite a lot of work. Uh, but for things like uh, Memcache or Redis, right, I sort of... Uh, I, I can't see that much value being provided by just the, the hosting part. Yeah, basically try and figuring out like how difficult is it for you to run your own instance on EC2? And if the operational load is fairly low, then you would probably choose to do that rather than use uh, one of the managed services. Maybe even co-host it with my other EC2 instances, right? which I mm-hmm. think is a nice pattern for caches. Right? Mm-hmm. You're, not, you're not even running a different fleet, but you just have another processor running on your hosts, and then right. it just scales automatically. Right? Um, right. W- w- it's of what I would default to do, right? but I would still look mm-hmm. into the options. Right? I think it's still wise to, to see whether I would be gaining something yeah. important. <laughs> One of the things I thought was interesting is you said you worked on the, the CloudWatch team. Yep. And... Uh, CloudWatch doesn't appear in <laughs> yeah <laughs> on the list, so I was kind of curious what your your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I think CloudWatch CloudWatch could might be worth uh, a sequel, a part two. I think I would have loved to include CloudWatch. I thought <laughs> that it would have been um, uh, the uh, CloudWatch itself has good parts and bad and less good parts. Let's not call them bad parts. Like things that yeah. I think are. Um, are worth using and things that are probably, um, there are probably better alternatives, third party, like outside of AWS. Um, and um, I think what's the, again, I think Amazon does not a very good job in explaining some of the good parts and the important aspects. Uh, and I think there's probably uh I don't know if there's a book worth of content or maybe a blog post or something, right? But I sort of at some point, if I find time, I intend to elaborate a bit more on uh, what you could do with CloudWatch that I, I believe many people are not aware of uh, just because they're just poorly documented or not documented at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, but for what it's worth, I'm using CloudWatch myself for user base, right? So it's sort of a signal. <laughs> for what it's worth, right? That mm-hmm. uh, I think you could do a lot in terms of monitoring out of CloudWatch. Uh, I think in terms of polish and user experience, there's lots of rough edges and some frustrating aspects that are significantly weaker than some other third-party uh, solutions. 
Um, but I think it gets its job done, right? And you know, for what it's worth, uh, pretty much Amazon runs on it, right? Um, you know, a trillion dollar company, uh, one of the biggest tech, <laughs> uh, you know, companies in the world. Um, so it's probably good for you <laughs> as well, right? <laughs> if it's good for for the company. But yeah. um, I think Carlos needs a more nuanced uh, take, right? That wouldn't have fit in sort of the style of the book that I had with sort of short chapters at high level. Um, but I, I lo- I'd love to expand more of it uh, if, if I find the time. <laughs> yeah. And you were mentioning how you felt like there were some third party options that you felt might be better. Could you give some examples of something that somebody should consider? I think it depends because monitoring is such a big space sort of uh, I think popular solutions, which I think they all have some good things like Datadog, Honeycomb, Elasticsearch, and Kibana, right? Um, and uh, and a few others. Uh, I I don't. I think some people again like depends whether you're running a small web application with uh, you know ten servers or whether you're running something with ten thousand servers. There's lots of different things, or whether you have just a monolithic application that is just basically horizontally scaled like a Rails app, or whether you have <coughs> a constellation of you know two hundred microservices. I think uh, the 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 options here start to change dramatically what makes sense and what's not. Right, but. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think, I think the, the, this this field is evolving a lot. There isn't really uh, one thing, sort of one product or one solution that's just the best, right, for everything. So yeah, I think again, like it's it's hard to sort of uh, give suggestions, mm-hmm. sort of in general on this topic. This is one of the reasons it mm-hmm. was hard to sort of <laughs> make it fit in the book. Yeah, yeah. Um... One of the things you mentioned earlier was how, you know, to host user bases website, you chose Netlify because the the user experience or the developer experience mm-hmm. was so much better. Um, what is your your thoughts on services like Heroku, for example, that that are a layer mm-hmm. on top of AWS, kind of take a lot of the the choice and kind of the things that people need to learn when they want to deploy an application? Um, why should someone spend the time to learn kind of AWS uh, when there are services that lie on top of it? No, no, I, I'm a big fan of the platform as a service, uh, Heroku style uh, approaches. Like I think if I had, if I, if I was working on an, again, like a Rails application, I think Heroku could be my default choice very easily, right? Um, and many of these things are, these decisions are reversible as well. Like if you dis, if you realize Heroku, you've outgrown Heroku for some reason. You're running into some limits, or it's too expensive, or whatever. Sure, it's not it's not a it's not a super easy way to migrate, but you could do it, right? It's uh, it's not that hard. Um, no, absolutely. I think uh, you 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 don't need to uh, necessarily learn AWS or learn all the things, um, and. Uh, or learn EC2, right? Because AWS has many things. You could still use use Heroku and still use S3 and DynamoDB, right? For example, which I think are um, you know very useful uh, tools in your tool chain, right? To to consider regardless of where you're hosting the application. Um, um, but you know, no, I I think again, I I, I see, I definitely see uh, a future where for most traditional 
web applications in general and mobile applications and things like that. The abstraction away from thinking about the server, the network, the operating system even, right, gets abstracted away, right? Um, and um, uh, I think I would, as a, as a developer myself, right, I would I would feel even more comfortable developing that, that way. Um, so yeah, I think, I think again, it, it, it's not necessarily my, my take on EC2. It's not necessarily that whatever you're doing, you should use EC2, right? Just treat EC2, EC2 as if you literally want a replica of your computer close to it, right? Uh, to uh, somewhere in the, running in the cloud, right? It's probably uh, the, you know, it's, it, 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 EC2 gives you that, right? Uh, but if what you want is something that runs your Rails application, Heroku is is that, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And even Elastic Beanstalk, for example, in the AWS world, right? It's uh, it's not as abstracted as Heroku. You still end up seeing your instances and have to do some things yourself. It's a layer in between, but it bootstraps it for you, right? That's how I think of Elastic Beanstalk. At least it sets it up without you having to figure out all the VPC and security groups and network and load balancer settings and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, no, yeah, big fan of uh, of the platform as a service uh, yeah. uh, tech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, knowing kind of how AWS works from the inside, what, what do you think is preventing AWS from building something similar to Heroku, like having a better developer yeah. experience for, for people? I don't think it's going to sound harsh, but I don't think Amazon in general and AWS specifically is good at these things. AWS is really good at providing products that end at the API, something like S3, DynamoDB, and things like that. When you start getting into the developer experience, user experience, UI, sort of the intangibles, hard to measure that make people happy when you use them. It just doesn't get get it. I mean, the company, there's something in it that doesn't know how to understand it, how to measure it, how to sort of develop mm-hmm. in it. I think this is very visible. If you look at the console, right, it's, uh, I think it's borderline frustrating, barely usable, some part of it, right, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of many, even the documentation and that, and many other things, right? Um, it's, uh, I've definitely seen this, right, from the inside as well, right? It's just mm-hmm. really, really hard to make a case um, for the things that are just, um, just, you know, just hard to measure, right, like, like these things. So I, you can never say never, right? I mean, maybe things change, right? But I think mm-hmm. uh, from uh, at least the time that I left, which was exactly a year ago, actually, literally to the day, <laughs> um, <laughs> things were we're still like that, right? Where the focus pretty much all the way up to the executive levels, pretty much to the CEO, like where the focus is on the latencies of APIs and the 99th percentile letter rates, like this is what everyone looks at, right? Uh, oh, uh, we managed to improve this API speed by two milliseconds, a big win, right? Which is which mm-hmm. is good, right? This sometimes translates to developer experience. But the more complicated thing, like sort of the like like how I explained like the Netlify experience where I literally just, you know, signed up for Netlify, connected to my GitHub account, clicked two buttons to my build command, clicked OK, and suddenly I have a URL for my website running, right? Where every commit has its own URL, like these small things. Um, 
I think sort of uh, the, the the issue with AWS is that the way most of AWS gets built is a bit more project driven. I I consider it that where like customers tend to become customers tend to ask for something and Amazon builds it. Right. And customers typically tend to ask, you know, I want this feature, right? I want this flag, I want this setting. You know, and Amazon turns around and builds it and it does a good job there. But things don't really start with sort of a vision of a highly polished developer experience or user experience, right? And, every, you know, everything starts from there. Which I think is funny, for example, one of the one of the examples is that every new initiative, every AWS service starts with, I don't, I don't know if you heard about it, right? But with the six-pager document, right? This is how AWS does works, uh, uh, builds new things. Where if you have an idea, you write a six-pager document, uh, explaining sort of writing pretty much the the press release and the FAQ and sort of how things are going to look at but it's all text you, it's literally you're banned from putting any images any demos mm. any uh, tables it has to be mm. just just all text which again like this works really well for when you're doing something very low level that's hard to do that's easy to describe in a narrative form like this because the the the, the sort of the interface is very slow but it's super hard to describe something where you just feel it and you feel happy, you just experience it and you feel happy about it. Right? It's just, <laughs> um, it doesn't really match. I, yeah. I, th- I think uh, what works there is like the demos, like the high fidelity demos, the working examples where you just say, oh, look, just type this and this and this happens, like this is amazing. Um, so yeah, I think... Uh, I wouldn't worry too much about Amazon sort of entering <laughs> or competing <laughs> with the high, uh, with sort of the developer experience um, focused mm-hmm. businesses. You know, it could yeah. happen, <laughs> but um, I don't, I wouldn't bet on it. Yeah, yeah. It would require like a, a really big, culture shift it's a dna like it change yeah like um mm-hmm. uh, and i see it i see it very hard to happen just the way the way things are structured like the obsession mm-hmm. is on something different all yeah. the way up right and it's just a just a culture um yeah. that i think started even with the amazon.com the e-commerce business right and translated mm-hmm. to aws as well uh, i yeah. believe yeah it's interesting because like people sometimes talk about how Amazon has this customer obsession, right? And yeah. that kind of goes into what you were saying about how people ask for things and then Amazon gives it to them. Um, but it, it, they, they kind of don't pull back, like a pull back a little bit and figure out like, um, what is it? What is, I guess, the story of somebody wants to build an app? Um, how can we make that experience like really smooth for them? It's more about how can we just get them the features they need? Yeah. And if they have to cobble them all together and it's complicated, it's okay. <clears throat> it know? is, it is like that. It's it's definitely something that I've observed. Like it's, it's the way things work, right? Customers ask for this, you know, once customer asks, mm-hmm. you have the mandate to and pretty much nearly the obligation, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, not not all the wayside, but to deliver it. And that's it. That's how it works. That's how roadmaps get built, right? Um, and um, uh, which I think <laughs> you you need to do things differently when you're just mm-hmm. saying to keep things simple. And this is the reason why setting something up in AWS ends up being yeah you have to patch these um, uh, fifty things together, right? And have configure permissions for different AWS services mm-hmm. to talk to each other. Like this, this is insane. Like why am I telling code builds? 
you are giving permissions to code build to use code deploy like they're two mm-hmm. AWS services <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, right and things like that like, that are just um, don't get me wrong like I think people are trying to improve these things it's not like nobody's aware of it right mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I believe like the environment that exists the culture like the way things work it's just super hard to make progress um, yeah and actually, yeah. I think the progress seems to be happening in the wrong direction, unfortunately, not not because, not intentionally, but I think uh, just like, like how we started, right? there's more focus, I think, and this is me speculating, but I think it's quite obvious right, that most of AWS's business nowadays comes from big enterprises and government contracts and things like that, which I think have very different requirements and needs than you know the indie developer and the small business. And uh, this is why when you go and spin up an EC2 instance, you get sort of a page of like, you know, 20 options that many of them you won't ever need, right? Mm-hmm. But they're there because if you're a bank and you want regulation, you have a regulation that your server can't be mixed up with someone else's, mm-hmm. you know, you have to, ch- to choose this box, right? <laughs> Which is only there because <laughs> of, you know, some industry or something like that, yeah. right? But yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, so as a as an overall strategy, I mean, clearly, currently, AWS is the market leader in terms of you know cloud providers. But in your opinion, kind of looking back at your experience there and how you think the future is going to go, do you think the strategy of you know building so many different services and just seeing what sticks? Um, is that a good strategy or do you think that it would be better having less products, but with some more, I guess, thought put into each one? Yeah, I think, I think, unfortunately, because I wouldn't want to see this happen, but I think AWS will become the IBM of what IBM is today. That basically becomes a vendor for big companies, big governments, a consultant, Mm -hmm. even like doing what they want, because that's where the money is, right? And, uh, Val- and uh, any value for the smaller businesses and the small developers and whatever would likely come from maybe other businesses that built on top of AWS, like like mm-hmm. Heroku, for example, right? It's sort of mm-hmm. how I see the evolution happening, right? Um, uh, I think we're already on that trajectory, actually, right? It's just, it's already started. I don't, it's hard to really predict when or how or how much maybe, and I hope actually that it manages to keep somehow, you know, the, uh, that it be, still remains feasible that, you know, I could do basic things with AWS without sort of getting to <laughs> lots of hurdles and things like that. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of my, my if, I, if I were to predict sort of how I see it going, right? Just because I think, and this is probably, uh, you know, Maybe beyond the topics here, right? but it's just the pressures of the of the financial aspects right? of Wall Street. Keeps it's, it's always living spectacular results. Everyone's expecting it to keep growing forty percent year on year, and you know I think the incentives are structured such that um, there's a limit to how much you know the small developers can provide. And if you go chase the ten billion dollar contracts with the <laughs> With the Pentagon or whatever, mm. right? It's you build very different products. Let's face it. I yeah. mean, it's uh, not, you, we're, we're not fooling anyone, right? Uh, the Pentagon definitely has different requirements <laughs> right, than, I, than sure. I need, right? And uh, yeah. um, uh, not to mention that it's uh, 
it's a, sometimes it's a, just a distraction, but I think what ends up happening is that the products evolve to uh, mirror what the big customers want, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we mentioned CloudFront, right? Again, like it's just the different experience. If, if you, mm-hmm. if anyone wants to go to the CloudFront and you go set new distribution or whatever it's called, you get this two, you know, page that I think you can scroll twice of mm-hmm. many different mm-hmm. options, right? And you, everyone yeah. has a learn more next to it. You go to the documentation, <laughs> yeah. which everything is useful, but you, for many people that just want to put some static assets in a CDN, right? Um, uh, it's uh, it's a lot, right? So <laughs> yeah, especially um, when you look at say um, you're a developer and you want to use a CDN and you go to say Cloudflare. And yeah. it's like a few clicks, exactly. and then you've got this CDN in front of your application. Yeah. So either, either, yeah, either AWS sort of becomes something that we, most of us, will never touch directly again, or maybe, and this I think maybe the most optimistic one is that mm-hmm. it remains a power, a power tool, like a power service. Like if you really want mm-hmm. to customize everything, that right, you 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 go there, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but we'll see. Maybe we'll yeah. have another podcast in 10 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we'll reflect on this prediction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's an that's a interesting, yeah, kind of insight. And, you know, I've, I've definitely seen the trajectory of, um, like you said, it's starting out as this pretty straightforward, simple service for developers to needing to serve more and more large customers get more and more complicated. And now if you're somebody who's new to development and you just want to host something on AWS, going to that console is just, um, you know, not (laughs) not a good experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, if people want to check out user base or your book or Mm -hmm. yourself, like I know you have a lot of um, interesting tweets now about kind of your experience yeah. Um, you know, running your own business and that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm mostly active on Twitter. So I'm on at D Vassalla, my first letter of my first name and my last name, uh, where I have the links there to my site and my book and my business. And uh, yeah, I sort of try to, um, I'm basically documenting my journey, right? I left, yeah, I left Amazon exactly a year ago. Since then, I've sort of been most, I've settled mostly on Twitter, but occasionally I write a blog post, uh, but uh, on Twitter, mostly close to a, on a daily basis. I'm sharing what I'm learning and what I'm seeing, decisions that I'm making, some uh, behind the scenes insight about the business running, like the books, for example, I, uh, the book, uh, I shared um, some my marketing efforts and my, my performance of the book and the sales and things like that, which um, I think... Uh, people, I, I think, find interesting, right? Sometimes as, in, as an inspiration for somebody wanting to do something similar, you can learn from my mistakes <laughs> or get inspired by hopefully the good results. <laughs> um, um, uh, but yeah, sort of, I, I'm enjoying this and it's sort of, I uh, have a decent following since uh, since I started. I just, um, this, I think, Lots of, there's lots of interest, right, in how things work and how to sort of start your own thing and how to especially get through the initial hurdles, right, uh, when, um, like I was, right, I sort of, this is the first time I'm doing some of these things, the book, I had never wrote a book or a digital product or any of that kind, so... Um, yeah, Twitter is where I share uh, most. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, well, Daniel, um, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jeremy, thanks, this was fun. 
I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Daniel. You can get show notes for this episode at softwaresessions.com, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks.